Hello and welcome to the Big Ben History Podcast, the latest in our series of interviews with the people in the room when Margaret Thatcher resigned to her cabinet in November 1990. If you like what you hear, please do go to iTunes and write a review. You can also hear me discuss the interviews with Dan Snow on his History Hit Podcast. Today's guest is Andrew Turnbull, a man who went on to run the civil service and who at the time of her fall was Margaret Thatcher's principal private secretary. Not only was he in the cabinet room as she sobbed her way through her resignation statement, but he was also in a corner for a series of one-to-one meetings she held with colleagues to discuss her future. A significant majority told us to go. But we started with the meeting where the Iron Lady finally surrendered. I remember it well, and by and large, uh, the, the people you've already recorded have given you a pretty good impression of it. There's not a lot to add about what actually happened in the cabinet room itself but I have one personal reflection which was uh, normally I would take the the papers for the meeting although they weren't very voluminous that day so after the she rang me early in the morning and confirmed that she was uh, going going to resign did not resign but give notice that she would resign Um, I started ringing around various people like the, the palace the Bank of England the Treasury and so on then I went up to the flat with the folder and we walked down the stairs together this meeting was due to start at nine brought forward there i think it was the memorial service for lady douglas hume so it wasn't the usual time and it came down the stairs and there was silence and i thought blimey have i, have I messed up here you know is it is it 9 30 is it you know have i got the wrong time because normally that they all they don't go into the room till the prime minister arrives in the ante room there's a great sort of hubbub joshing and joking translating business anyway silence and then i come around the corner and there they all are standing pressed back against the wall basically looking down at their shoes saying christ what have we done here anyway that was uh, the atmosphere. Then, then she goes in. Then there's uh, the whole event about how uh, reading her statement, etc. Then she calls off the meeting. They have a break, and then they finish off some um, other quite minor business. But what was then noticeable was, come the afternoon, she had this confidence debate to answer and all it was like a woman had a sort of huge weight off her back here was a terrible decision she had to make and she was absolutely dreading having to actually announce this but once she had announced it she was reinvigorated and this was the famous i'm really enjoying this debate that she had and of course she completely and dominated the the discussion. And let me just ask you, I mean, does the civil servant kick in or did you have a moment when you get the phone call from the Prime Minister who you've worked for for six or seven years or probably longer? Does, is there a bit of human functioning as well then? Um, I think that I thought my job was to keep the show on the road, really, that uh, here is a, uh, an event of governmental constitutional importance going on here and we've got to make sure it's all done properly so i didn't invest a great deal of emotion in the event itself that others you've had from caroline Slowclock, you know deeply moved by it the only time that i've kind of in a sense was sort of deeply moved by it was a day one day later two days later i got one of the garden room girls to come up and i started to dictate my notes of the meetings and there was one point where i thought yeah this is you know 
I'm going to take a break here. Otherwise, it was a question of uh, making sure this was all done in a proper fashion and beginning to think ahead as to what preparations we needed to make for an incoming prime minister. So they, mostly it was the, the, the civil servant in control at that point. There's one point where it kind of goes off the script. Having announced her intention to resign, flowers are flooded in to number 10. The entrance hall was knee-deep, shoulder-high in flowers. Now, I'm not one for buying flowers regularly to take home to my wife, but when the, uh, she was leaving, she said, this, oh, Andrew, do tell the staff that, you know, help themselves. So everyone sort of went home with armfuls of flowers. So I turned, I'd only ever come back with an armful of flowers once before. I had a secretary who was receiving flowers from an unwanted admirer that she didn't want to take back to her partner. So she gave them to me and I took them home. That was a surprise now. And then all of a sudden I turned up with another armful of flowers and I had to explain, well, these were the flowers that had all been donated to number 10 and we were sharing them out amongst... amongst so when your wife gets flowers, she knows something's up? Well, she she thought, this isn't, this isn't characteristic behaviour, so I had to explain yeah. why it was. Yeah. You, you alluded there to the other meetings when you were making the minutes of. So <clears throat> you're talking there about Mrs Thatcher meeting at Cabinet one-to-one to yes. find out what they should do. And you, you and her are probably the only people in the room for all those meetings. I think... I was, was Peter Morrison there? I can't remember. Anyway, if it was, we, I was certainly kind of tucked away in a corner somewhere as I wasn't sitting with it. It was just simply her sitting with whoever had come in for, to uh, express their view. Now, you come down to this question, often been asked, why did she decide to see people one-to-one? Was it a mistake if she had decided to see them collectively, would the outcome have been different? Now, my view is that this was, if you're looking from the point of view of the country, the point of view of the Conservative Party, I think this was the right decision because it was more likely that people one-on-one would tell her what they really thought than if they had to be in a group and then where maybe... The preceding speakers would all say, you know, you've got to fight on, we'll all stick with you all the way. Someone would have to break that ice, and possibly no one would, in which case she would conclude that fighting on was the right thing to do. So I think she got a more honest assessment of opinion by hearing them all one-to-one, even though it denied her the chance of trying to stage um, a late rally. Now, people that were looking after her interests could have been saying you should fight on and I will fight all the way with you or a lot of them I think quite sincerely were saying I wouldn't do this please don't do this because this isn't going to end well for you there'll be humiliation uh, in it and there were then those making a political calculation was if you fight on Heseltine's going to win this and all those sort of informal well, it wasn't polling, but the sort of sense was that Heseltine's momentum was uh, was growing. The only way they could stop Heseltine would be for her not to fight, and then someone else, and it turned out to be um, Heard and Major, someone else could who who, who would not have con, um, competed with her, 
but with her not in the field, someone else could have come in and fought the fight against Heseltine and ultimately win it. Now, that's that's what for a variety of motives. Uh, I think we actually got the right outcome. Now, it wasn't for me as a civil servant to advocate that. There was a politician to sort out. But that's, uh, in retrospect, I think the right course was followed to have these one-on-one meetings. We touched there earlier about the balance between the human and the civil servant. Was there a part of you, you're sitting in there witnessing conversations between a prime minister and a colleague saying, should I stay on? Was there part of you thinking, I can't believe this is happening? Well, um... No, because it clearly was. Yeah. But what there was, it's a question that some people have alluded to, how on earth did it come as a surprise? Well, I didn't think it particularly was a surprise. I remember, I never wrote a diary, um, unlike, you know, Sir John Colville, who wrote one that was a very famous diary in, in that office. But round about March, I started to write some notes Um, because things were looking pretty dire and there was uh, an article appeared in the press and Anthony Bevins, no sympathiser of the Prime Minister's saying people are beginning to talk about whether they should move her on and get a new leader and then Gordon Rees from the Conservative Party said I must come and talk to you Margaret and and he he came in and had dinner with her or a meeting with her and gave her quite a hard time I'd say you know this isn't going well you are the people that you have brought into your support the kind of C1s and so on the sort of middle class lower class up and working class whatever they're going through a hard time and they're perceiving you as either unsympathetic or have moved on to other business greater things around the world and so things was quite kind of nervous at that point the Labour lead was well into double figures um, Kenneth Baker in his podcast said, well, his, his job was to kind of nurture her through this difficult time and he thought that once you got through the party conference then you could sort of make her run for the line for, for the election now one of Mrs Thatcher's great skills that she displayed until this last episode was she could endure unpopularity and she was like a kind of horse race jockey. She knew when to make her effort. She did not mind being behind in the opinion polls because she was confident that she could turn it round and emerge the winner at the end. And she did it uh, three times. I think a number of people were beginning to think she's left it too late. You know, this, this isn't going to happen this time. You know, whereas it happened in... Uh, up to the 83 election, 87 election. But this time, uh, she's A, too far behind, and B, too unpopular, running policies that are too unpopular. So they were beginning to doubt that the, the magic of her timing was going to work this time. Now, it wasn't surprising that the Tories were in bad shape. We used to have a thing called the Misery Index, which was, I don't know whether you multiply them together or took the square root or cube root or something. Uh, interest rates, the rate of inflation and the rate of unemployment. Well, the interest rates were 14%, inflation was over 10 unemployment was still, um, had grown, hadn't started to come down as it did after 
92.3. When you take those together, it is not surprising that the government of the day was uh, unpopular. She also had another disadvantage that the longer you go on, and each time you have a reshuffle, people think you, they talk about refreshing the government. So you bring in you know, four or five new people, and another four or five go out onto the back benches. By this time, I think she had over 100 people who had been in her government, most of whom thought they should still be in her government, plus the has-beens and the never-wases and the overlooked. So over time, Prime Minister's support from their own party tends to, tends to erode. So it's not surprising that, you know, the that prime ministerial reigns come to an end at some point. But it, it was surprising to her. She wasn't expecting this. No, she. I don't think she was expecting this. I mean, she was the most influential, uh, powerful politician in the Western world, the people they all wanted to listen to. Um, and she had been through this phase of gradually opening up with with the Soviet Union. She was doing two things. She was opening up with the Soviet Union, trying to get on better terms with them, while campaigning actively to destroy the Soviet Union. And in the end, she was part of destroying the Soviet Union. It wasn't, it was eventually Yeltsin that destroyed it, rather than Gorbachev. But she was pushing the idea continuously for the uh, the socialist republics, uh, the, the Soviet empire, Telling their people at any chance she could get the Baltics, um, Poland, um, Hungary, or whatever, you don't have to put up with this. There is a better life for you. Um, you know, if you join the kind of the values of the West of freedom, democracy, the rule of law, markets, etc., etc. And she had pushed that, and I suppose it reached. I think it reached its. Uh, peak in the, a visit she made to, to Poland where she met she went to Gdansk met with Lech Wałęsa there are accounts of the service in the church there, the major church there which was sort of heaving with sort of nationalist fervour and hanging on her every word about you know I can, I can lead you to a better world by the time of the the conference, the CSE conference, which was on the day of the poll. That was basically when that whole agenda was finally signed off in, in a treaty. Now, what at that point, could she have concluded, that's as good as it gets for me. You know, that is my, I will go down and I've transformed the British economy, British society, and I have transformed the society of, of Europe. And you know, what well, is is there an encore for me? Now she she believed that she could, but other she people, absolutely believed she could. She she was she was not interested in resignation. No, um, I think the other thing that about this time, of course, you were beginning to get um, the issue of German unification, which she she misread really. The uh, she thought it, you know we should try and stop this happening. Cold saying, look, I've got families on either side of this border being separated for um, since the war went up, but even further back. I can't keep those people apart. They're all part of Germany. 
Mitterrand equally dis- was suspicious of German unification, but they, they they agreed on that. But they had completely different responses to how to deal with it. In her case, it was to try and keep Germany divided. In Mitterrand's case, it was we have to change the way the European Union is constructed to bind Germany more closely in. So, so do you think it was? So basically, she's hugely distracted in her final year by the end of the Cold War, which is the seismic moment in history. Do you you think it was a bandwidth problem? She didn't have time to look at the troops at home, or was she also becoming too imperious and had lost her antennae? I think she had lost her antennae to to some extent. Uh, The poll tax was a serious misjudgment. Um, People came around and told her that this wasn't right. There were the economists who said it wasn't right because you're never going to raise as much money when you can only collect out the maximum you can collect is dictated by the shallowest pockets as opposed to the deepest pockets. You never get as much money from a poll tax as you would from a progressive tax like rates or possibly what it became um, council tax. There were others who just said it was unfair and uh, one day, Yehudi Menuhin came in to see her and he said, who was a great fan of hers, and, and she was a great fan of his. And he said, Margaret, I have to tell you, this thing, is, this thing just isn't right. I have a housekeeper. He lived in a very um, luxurious place in Kensington somewhere. And she lives in a flat, which is a separate, I think the word is hereditament, a separate dwelling. And she is paying the same as I'm paying this just isn't right. This just isn't right. And I feel so so strongly that it isn't right. I actually pay her um, poll tax, council tax for her. Didn't read those signals. Um, and then all the way through, having announced this policy, which was meant to be a kind of supplement rate. So we were going to have something called dual running. And... Then, after the 87 election, there was a party conference. And I think Ridley, wasn't it, who got rid of it? I think. Well, Ridley, I think it might have been Jerry Malone. <laughs> he said, Footnote. we don't need all this dual running, you know, let's just go the whole hog, let's get it over with. And anyway, so the dual running was um, abandoned, and they were, so they were going straight to it now. There were no proper work done on the redistributive effects either of different councils or even of different families and so all sorts of transitional mechanisms had to be kind of added to it and try and take the sting out of it but its floor the central floor was still there now had you just she wouldn't listen on that one i mean people were telling her this is not a case of she, she was being denied the advice she needed well, she wasn't the, listening anymore. I think kind of Nigel Lawson rather took the view, this, this thing is complete madness, and he kind of opted out almost. Yeah. I mean, he spotted immediately that it wasn't, it wasn't a good piece of taxation and it wasn't a good piece of social policy. Um, but there were still people who thought that there was, you know, everyone should pay something. But this particular tax as it was designed um, was completely flawed. Your colleague Robin Butler, he told me that he, I think he, he he worked with her very closely. Then he went to the Treasury. I might have got wrong. And he came back and he said she changed. He found her harder to work with towards the end. Was that your experience as well? 
Well, I can remember a phrase that came to mind. When I came back, Robin and I left it. We'd both been there in um, 85. He went off and spun around the world for a bit when I went back to work in the Treasury. And then we came back. By this stage, he'd become the, he'd become the Cabinet Secretary and I'd take over Nigel Wicks. And I remember thinking, more grandeur and less Grantham. And the people she was talking to, people she was mixing with, were different. Um, and I remember going to Checkers, and where this platoon of women's air force or whatever came and, and ran it for her and talked to the, the housekeeper and she said oh we're getting different kind of people now you know just get more helicopters now than we used to so there was, there was a, socially I think she'd got moved and better off people have got more ear time and face time with her so she she had, I think, lost some of the her sort of social touch, while meanwhile being fantastically strong um, internationally. Now, when I said that she, that her position was very weak in the spring of 1990, and gradually it sort of eased, and they got through to they got through to the summer recess. But the other thing that was happening was that it's like a tree; the branches kept dropping off. That well, Willie Whitelaw had gone, Lawson had resigned, and then there were three kind of voluntary, you know, spend more time with my family: uh, Norman Fowler, Peter Walker, and David Young, and Nick Ridley, kind of well, self-destructed. So you, people could see that this edifice that, that, that had really been really powerful in the mid '80s was beginning to. We need to fall apart. So, in a way, I, it wasn't in retrospect. It wasn't surprising that um, she didn't uh, didn't survive. And really, she, well, it shouldn't have been surprising. But, but people thought that having been things looking really dire in the spring, by the autumn. Things weren't too bad. Now, one of the things. Well, were you surprised? She was surprised. You, you know her, but no, I wasn't surprised that she she thought that things were uh, were fine. One of the so other, nothing in her reaction to all that happened surprised you. You, you didn't think, God, how, how didn't she see this coming? Um, no, I wasn't really analysing. You know whether she was right. To, all I know that, that it was a great shock to her, and it remained. It was like a bereavement uh, to her. The other thing that happened in the first week of August 1990, Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait. And she's there telling George Bush, don't go wobbly, George. So she's an important uh, part of forming this alliance, which included virtually everyone, including including the French and and other Arab nations, that pushed Saddam Hussein... uh, out of Kuwait in what we call deserts, desert storm, and so there's a sort of sense was that she was kind of needed at that point. Although, in fact, the transition to John Major, by which uh, the, by the time the serious fighting started, John Major was uh, was there. But it, it gave her what was what was filling our headlines. The filling our headlines was 
a subject on which she had a relative strength, an international position. And that may have accounted for the fact that her domestic worries, the, the Parliament being in recess, international issues being at the forefront, meant that people weren't really talking much about succession. And then it just needed something to kind of, you know, a spark um, for it. So and then if we, it's... Um, then it was the, the speech, well, it was the Geoffrey Howe speech. Now, Geoffrey Howe speech. I, I imagine, as a Treasury man, you worked a lot with Geoffrey Howe. As a Downing Street man, you worked a lot with Mrs Thatcher. What, what was the problem in that relation? Was it personal or was it ideological? Um, I think it was both. Um, there was clearly uh, strong divisions over uh, European policy uh, and resentment over what we could call the Madrid ambush, where they uh, Lawson and uh, Howe threatened resignation if she didn't go to the European Council and give a date for joining the ERM. And she said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Anyway, she came back with a modified formula, like, well, we'll join when the time is right. And so she thought that she had called their bluff. Um, and, you know, the, but that actually soured the atmosphere. So um, you know, later, Lawson resigns over a different, it's still really about the ERM, but that's, he resigns this dispute with Alan Waters. Jeffrey, the relationship gets kind of worse and worse. And there was a apparently a cabinet meeting where they were talking about the legislative program. And she suddenly launched into, why isn't these bills ready? It's your job to assemble this legislative program. And she was really kind of beastly to me. He... Um, was that the straw which broke the camel's back? People differ. I think. Had you seen that sort of baby before? Had you been in meetings where you saw nothing quite as extreme as that? Nothing quite as extreme as that. But there was tension. She wasn't nice to him. She wasn't nice to him, and she could be quite unnice to to other people. This was this was a classic Mandarin phrase: unnice. The I think that Jeffrey had been planning this for some time. I think in his memoirs. He doesn't actually say this was the the last for the, the last straw. He was he was looking for his a moment to do. He, he wanted to get out. He had been humiliated by the demotion to being Lord President of the Council and kicked out of um, uh, what the, the uh, not Charwell. Uh, yes, sir. Chevening. Chevening. That's it. Houses. Um, so I think he. This was something planned. I don't think there are people that say this was the thing which finally pushed him out. I, I I'm looking at other evidence. I came to the conclusion he was going to make a move at some point, and uh, what actually gave him the pretext was um, the report back from the European Council. You know the no, no, no. But what was that? Um, what was it? Perhaps you worked for both of them, and I, I don't know if you enjoyed working for both of them. But could, could, did, it, did it puzzle you that their relationship was so difficult? Um, well, Jeffrey could be quite pernickety, but that, in some ways, is that was his strength. You know, he was he was a very he was incredibly diligent. You know, absolutely read everything. Could be indecisive, and he'd say, "No, on some more." 
information or whatever. But, you know, as a minister, he was, uh, he was first class. You sometimes wish you've got people who did the homework now, like he did it then. Um, there was also, I think there was an Elspeth dimension to this. She thought that's his wife, yeah. Yeah. Uh, she thought that they were entertained. It was their weekend residence, and there were people being invited to dinner. This was a kind of coven of, um, you know, uh, dissenting people. And I think she quite unnecessarily got sort of worked up about that. This is Mrs. Adger. Yes. Yeah. She, she thought she, that they were plotting. Yes, yes. So it was a. It was a a mixture of the personal, but I would say principally that they, they courses particularly on Europe were diverging more and more, and eventually, uh, um, you know, the, the the demotion and then getting the, the rough end of a edge of a tongue, all kind of added up. But I think he just felt that he didn't really belong in this. It wasn't wasn't one of her trusted advisors anymore, and so he thought he wanted to get out. You mentioned just so we'll go back to one figure. You mentioned one character in the meetings, uh, Peter Morrison, yes. who was uh, Thatcher's parliamentary private secretary and ran her initial campaign where she yeah. didn't get enough votes to stay on. Uh, a lot of people are very rude about that campaign. Were you aware as a civil servant that that campaign didn't perhaps have the energy it might have? Uh, yes, yes. I mean, he was a lovable character, but deeply flawed, uh, Peter. But he was... Uh, I mean, drinking by then? Oh, certainly drinking by then, yes. Um, but just didn't have the grip. She had been served for a time by Ian Gow. Ian Gow was a sort of little man who did a very, very busy in the House of Commons. He would kind of get in everywhere. So he knew... Everyone, he was a sort of consummate sort of plotter, manipulator, courtier, courtier, and snout almost. And then he left, and none of the people that followed her uh, Michael Allison, Archie Hamilton, um, not uh, Lennox Boy, Lennox Boy, none of them had that same sort of quality of. I, I, I can find out what's really going on and what's more I will tell you about it. None of them had that. They all, they were all of a different sort of mould. They were more sort of caught all incredibly kind of courteous people. So they, all very, posh as well. Yeah, she, they were all she, posh. Had, she had a weakness for... Um, they're all posh and they're all over six foot tall. <laughs> uh, and even, even Peter Morrison was, was, was yeah. pretty posh. I mean, he was part of sort of Tory aristocracy. So she she was not getting what you would expect to get from a PPS, which is you realise well, you know what's going on here, you've got to do something about that. No one ever came close to replacing the valuable service that Ian Gow gave her as PPS. And um, what, what, what was your relationship? Did you enjoy working for her? I enjoyed working for her. She was incredibly loyal, would never dream of saying oh well, that's you know you screwed up here um and also incredibly kind of disciplined so every day papers around about five six o'clock at night would start to surface in a department get to the minister's private office and then they'd start arriving at about seven o'clock in the 
number 10. And you had to then cipher how many of them need to be acted on that day, that night or whatever. And you're preparing all the papers for the next day's meetings. And she expected to go into a meeting having read them. And you put them all into a, uh, a case, one of those dispatch cases. And let's say we're up to about nine o'clock here. Could be later. You go up to the flat and knock on the door. No, ring the bell of the flat. Open the door. Put this case the other side of the door. Shut the door and run. What you did not want to do was be there when she opened that case. Have you seen this? This is terrible. <laughs> and then you get into an argument about what's actually in there. Um, and that's your evening gone. Um, but the next morning, I was generally not the first back in the morning. It would be either Charles or Caroline Ryder had been able and retrieved this case. And you, you owned it up, and the duty clerks would break it down into papers of the principal private secretary, the economic affairs private secretary, et cetera, et cetera. And you get your things, and you look at these things, and she has been through them all. And what's more, has dealt with them conclusively. Yes, no, yes, but make sure you get this point across. John Major was equally diligent, but you got you got more please refers or can I have another word? And he didn't his completion rate wasn't as high, but he he definitely believed in being prepared for meetings, and so it was the whole thing kind of ran like clockwork. And then by nine o'clock, I would be dictating in those days. That's how it worked. Um, some of the guard rooms they. Prime Minister's Senior Secretary of State's uh, minute of such and such, you know, agrees with X, Y, and Z, um, subject of Y. And by 10 o'clock, that's gone back to Whitehall. Okay? And this relentless cycle went on and on and on. And there'd also be a lot of signatures. She signed all these letters. She didn't say, oh, I'll leave those at the weekend or anything. Um, and you get a lot of things where. I'm proposing to appoint X to be the new chairman of the um, I don't know, environment agency or something. And all it was really doing was seeking a consent in a kind of formal way. All those were signed off, even though it wasn't really of great importance to her, but it meant that that minister could then get on with the business of making that appointment. So she did things that other people wanted her to do, even if she didn't want to do them herself. So that she was incredibly industrious, and it made life made life terribly easy to sort of maintain this kind of rhythm of you know, this high volume of work. And so things didn't pile up. You didn't get a great. Well, I have noticed all, all her officials seem to have really loved her, whereas her colleagues, not so much. No, no. Well. Uh, I remember going to my wife. We were, we were invited to lunch and check in. We actually, some reason, arrived late. I don't know quite why. But anyway, the lunch went on. It was winding up about I don't know, three or just after. And there were a number of ministers, quite some junior ministers, and things, and they started to drift off. And Dan and I were kind of heading the door. Oh, no, just you stay behind. Stay behind. You know, we can have a talk afterwards. So what did she like? She liked talking shop with her officials in her private office in preference to talking shop with her colleagues. 
So, um, yeah, no, she was... And that, that might have caused problems in the end. I mean, it, it may have caused problems, yeah. yeah. It may have caused problems in the end. That she, um, uh, she was a more a distant figure and she felt more com- comfortable saying, well, you know, um, I'd like to have a seminar on monetary policy. Who could you, who do you think we should invite to this seminar? And, you know, and you, you just organise this event, or it could be about what does German unification mean? You know, Charles then rustled up all sorts of analysts on that subject. That's what she really liked doing, and so she much prefers talking to us about that than talking to the, the political colleagues. I've kept you for a long time, I must, I must let you go. Just finally, I mean, you mentioned that there was that moment you had to take a break writing the notes. Just looking back on the whole process that week, uh, it, it was a very sad and tragic moment, but it was a very, uh, a very um, unhappy period. Well, I don't think we realised quite how unhappy it was immediately. I mean, the fact, the whole, you know, her going off to wherever she went to live. I mean, she, didn't, she had this house in Dulwich, completely unsuitable place for a prime minister or an ex-prime minister to live. And uh, then she sort of left, kind of with, with nothing to do, and... Uh, some you know very good friends, um, you know, Alison Wakeham being one, and um, say Michael Forsyth, Gerald Howarth. People came in and, and visited her, but she was, for a time, completely at sea. Then, then she managed to get this kind of the Thatcher Foundation going, and then gave her an opportunity for speeches and travel. But there was a time when she, I think she was completely, completely at sea, and it was very difficult for her.